Welcome everybody to another episode of the Right Rain podcast. Yes, it's been a little while since we last put one out there. I've definitely been a bit slack, but I've been very busy on other fronts, I can assure you. But I'm really looking forward to getting these up and going again, interviewing some really cool and interesting people from all areas of the equestrian world and getting to figure out you know, how to solve all the horse problems that all the listeners have got. Uh, I know I've got plenty, so we'll definitely be starting with those questions. And tonight's guest is a man who I've been helped by plenty, Robert Stewart. He's a EA Level 3 jumping coach, Level 2 general coach, and an EA Level 1 jumping course designer. He's ridden to the top level in both eventing and show jumping. He has decades of experience producing horses, producing riders, and I turn to him a lot in regards to both training horses and also he's got a lot of knowledge in regards to breeding show jumping horses and we'll hear a lot about that uh, in this episode. So stick around everybody and I hope you enjoy the chat with Rob as much as I did you know, we barely even scratched the surface on a few, quite a few of the topics. So you never know, we'll get him back for another episode sooner rather than later. Well, tonight's guest, we have Rob Stewart, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Charlie, how are you doing? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, mate. How's your day been? Interesting in lots of ways. <laughs> Just juggling a, juggling a few things, eh? Yeah, a few health issues at the moment, but um, hopefully they'll be all gone in 2022 and it's onwards and forwards from there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, COVID's probably certainly been a, a, t- a tough year for that. Indeed, yeah. Well, back to, back to the uh, show jumping, uh, and it was good catching up with you on the weekend at Summer Classic. Unfortunately, um, you know, we neither of us were able to sort of be doing the riding that we wanted. Uh, it's pretty hard getting entries into the competitions these days. You know, I know a lot of people sort of sort of have to be on the computer at the exact minute that the entries open. What do you what do you see as a solution to the problem that a lot of the riders out there are having? That's a really good question. Um, the early entry codes that you're speaking of, um, they've become uh, very common now in in uh, in entries um, and in the entry process. Um, and I understand from both sides, obviously being um, president of Sydney Jump Club and um, being a rider, you you know from an org- organisation organising committee's perspective, you. Um, you need to balance the the sponsorship and the money that you can get into fund putting on a big show and offering decent prize money and equipment and and grounds and all of those considerations. It costs a lot of money to put a show on, and um, unfortunately, um, outside of the immediately involved people being riders and teams and owners and you know supporters of the sport that are that are involved in it um it's very hard to attract uh you know significant sponsorship and so of course those people get get asked to sponsor a lot from a lot of the shows particularly regional shows so sydney centric shows a lot of the same people get asked to do the sponsorship and um and you know they that comes with some conditions. They want to get entries if they're going to sponsor, and, and we all understand the logistics of that. Um, but trying to balance that, um, the numbers of those early entries that that um, you want to accept through through sponsorship and early entry codes, and being able to give adequate access to the competitions to riders who are not in a position to do that. Mm. Uh, it's a really tough call, and... Um, and the demand at the moment is really high. The numbers in the sport are really encouraging, um, but there just aren't enough uh, you know, numbers in the, to, to run the program um, efficiently. So 
they have to cut the numbers off for certain classes and and those people that enter sometimes well I'm, I don't know about you but I was t I was online at the right time in two minutes and in two minutes I couldn't get my entry in so um, you know that happens that happens at our shows at Sydney Jump Club and we we try to you know um, balance the percentage of early entries with the percentage of available spaces but it's a juggling act it's really difficult to um, accommodate you know that dynamic so uh, it's not an, an easy thing I, I i don't see an option to having them to make the shows go ahead but uh yes it it's going to require some um some more scope within the programs and within the venues to be able to um offer more spaces yeah it's difficult yeah i never i've never had problems uh like this entering a dressage competition um but unfortunately, you know, we're both more passionate about show jumping. Yeah, it seems that, you know, there needs to be more arenas or more shows. But like you said, it's it's pretty expensive running a show and, you know, uh, not many people put their hands up to be club secretaries and uh, organise the events. Like, no. as you know, organising competitions uh, seems to be a pretty stressful job. Uh, it's a lot of work for those that put their hands up and their volunteerism seems to be largely dead. And um, that's a bit of a shame because um, that means you have to pay everyone, which, of course, puts the cost of everything up. And uh, and hence the shows become more expensive and and more limited. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a dilemma. That's for sure. Mm, and you mentioned uh, you know, that about sponsorship, a lot of the same sponsors get asked again. You know, is there anything you see uh, clubs or riders themselves could do better in regards to helping with sponsorship? Look, I, I really think um, the more shows that start up, um, they will start up with their own connections and they will start to attract their own sponsors from their own areas. And, you know, and I, I, I think there's there's definitely scope now for events to run on the same weekends, um, so that so that um, you know more more people can be catered for. Um, I think there's a it's certainly time for a a grading of shows, um, so that you know um, people get want to start at a, like a five star show. They you might well be able to run a, a two star show at, on the same weekend and cater for lower grades and you know say up to a meter twenty shows. And so there, there is scope for, for, um, for change and, um, and that would accommodate the growth. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of options out there. I mean, that options on been on the table for some years, but, hmm. uh, and I thought was going ahead, but seems to have, um, uh, the interest in, in doing that seems to have waned at, a, at an executive level. So I'm not quite sure why that is, but I, I definitely think in Sydney now, you know, we, we, we have events that run concurrently and I, I actually think that's a healthy thing. You'll have more admin teams developing, um, different sets of sponsors. You, you would hope, um, and uh, you know, so so that then gives the capacity to to develop those shows and have more of them. So I, I think that's um, that's the only way. And then and then you'll develop a, a wider pool of sponsors and you know, organising committee people, volunteers, skilled, you know, judges pencilers, commentators, the, the full gamut. Yeah, so I mm. think that is the way to go, really. Yeah, there's a lot of different facets of it, uh, there's oh, a yeah. lot of pieces of the pie. Yeah. Definitely, well, yeah. tell me about your early early writing days in your 20 questions uh, with... The question, how bang is that? You mentioned uh, you were living in Tamworth until age 10 and then you moved to Brisbane uh, and that's where you began riding competitively. And then at 18, you moved to Sydney. So tell us about that, the early days, uh, I guess, back in Brisbane, that would have been when you were at Pony Club. Is that right? Yeah, but even pre-Pony pre Club, my father was a travelling salesman and he bought four ponies on one of his trips up to North Queensland, sent them back to Brisbane on a train, all unbroken. <laughs> on a train. <laughs> on a train. We had to get them off the train onto some form of horse transport. I think it was an open trailer. <laughs> Uh, so that you know, it started pretty pretty rough, and um, my father was a was a was a you know a jackaroo, so he thought he knew how to break in horses. But um, yeah, so my brother and I, we were very greenhorns when we broke the four of them in, and 
and three of them we sold off quite quickly and uh, one of them became really the top eventing pony in Queensland. So he was a great little um, Australian Welsh and um, yeah, he started that in me. I guess I started eventing from my first pony really. It was mm. a fairly, in, fairly inauspicious start but um, and then yeah, just wanted to start doing more of that and did a lot on the, the, the pony Evan and um, and then uh, I ended up selling him to buy to buy up and uh, went through a couple of uh, racehorses that didn't work and um, landed a very, very good, experienced old show jumping horse. And, um, yeah, he took me to winning the state eventing titles within the Pony Club movement and also um, competing in the state show jumping championships and doing quite well in there too. So that was, I think I was 14 at that stage. 15 when I captained the Queensland eventing team. And that for me was, yeah, pretty much uh, I was dyed in the wool going eventing. And, uh, yeah, so um, evented up to had to open competitions on him. And uh, we only had one three-day event in Queensland at the time, which was uh, Albany Creek, or it was Brisbane three-day event, but Albany Creek at Ron Patterson's place. Mm-hmm. And once, once I attended that, that's just that just said it for me I was that's where I was going and um yeah and that's the direction I headed for a while and um then family split up some you name it ended up moving to Sydney so um yeah and then yeah started afresh down here with a couple of young things and um within a couple of years I was back eventing and yeah won the national titles down here at at, uh, we only had novice and advanced, so at the, won the novice national titles in '84, I think, on the horse called Straight Talk, which I started off the track. And um, and he wasn't a very good show jumper. And the time I was uh, in Terry Hills training with Tina Wommelsdorf for my dressage, and uh, mm. and George Santa started coming to the place next door to us, or where I actually kept my horse in Terry Hills at what was then Samurai Park. And um, I started having weekly jumping lessons with George, and um, and yeah, together we we turned that horse into a very very um, capable jumper. He jumped around like futurities at Wentworth Park, and make a decent decent horse, but not a super. This show was jumper. straight talk. Straight talk, yeah. Yeah. And um, and what what do you think it was um, about George's training, uh, you know, in helping your riding and training uh, that took that horse's jumping to the next level? Oh, well, I'd never really had any formal jumping training until that time. So I'd just ridden off instinct and, and you know, whatever natural ability I brought to the equation. And uh, so George was very much started. I mean, I'd had a couple of clinics and things like that in Queensland, but um, George is very much disciplined on on position and rhythm and line and tempo and... and um, yeah, just started that process for me, which and, and working with him every week obviously helped. Um, you know, he's been a very um, prominent coach in the development of, oh gosh, the decades of riders now. And mm. I was fortunate to be one of the early ones, I guess. Yeah, definitely. But it was 84. You mentioned, was it Albany Creek? Was that the three day event in Queensland? Yeah. You said yeah. you said when you were there at fifteen that sort of lit the fire. I think was that the words you used? Pretty much. Um, yeah. And you know, so was that really the fire of you wanting to be a professional writer? Sort of was that your dream at the time? I don't, I don't even think I even considered the possibility of that from my background and and um, but it was just I just knew that that's what I wanted to do with horses. I didn't mm. you know, I didn't really think about professionalism or you know riding coaching or anything like that because it wasn't it really wasn't even an option back then you were so it wasn't until you were down in in sydney that that um matured a bit further yeah absolutely yeah so i uh when i won the national titles i started getting a few of my own sort of teaching clients locally and and um and then um yeah i then became george's working pupil out in oakville and i lived in oakville um, with a friend of mine, and his place was quite close to George's, so I did racehorses and very early in the morning and late in the afternoon, and and, mm. and worked with George during the during the day. And um, 
you know, got to to ride the young things there and, and ride some of the good horses. And, you know, I was there at an era when George was riding Kite and King Amiga and, you know, he, he ended up going to both those horses went to to uh, uh, Los, Los Angeles, I think it was, Olympics. So I was there in a, in a very good period of George's, yeah. you know, early international um you know, at Olympic Games experience had been obviously overseas before, but um, it was a great period. They were a couple of fabulous horses, and we had really good shows. And and um, yeah, it was a it's, it was a real era of you know, it was a bond the bond era in Australia when there was quite a lot of money, prize money available in show jumping, and there was good quality shows on. The World Cup meant something, and you know, the, was, the bond era that's that's something I've heard a few times. I, it, I have a vague idea of what it's uh, Alan Bond, I guess, but to sort of people of my generation, can you explain a bit what you mean by that, the Bond era? Sure. Um, well, Alan, Susan Bond um, became an equestrian and you know, was in Western Australia and became quite proficient and obviously had resources and um, so started to, to travel around the country and, and also overseas and and she she was very well supported by by Alan and Eileen Bond and um, and then uh, Bond and Laurie Connell started um, a big show run in the West in Western Australia and um, and so that really complemented the World Cup calendar. It was you know a challenge for people to get from the Eastern States over to the West, but for a period there that was um, yeah, just the like the benchmark of shows in the country. They were just fantastic shows, and, mm. and along with Wentworth Park here in in Sydney, which was a, a premium show. And yeah, that they bought sponsorship dollars and made competitions, um, you know, really worth winning. And yeah, it was just yeah, a great bought in, international riders over, and uh, it was a fantastic time in in show jumping. Yeah, no, that's yeah. you learn something new every day. Far out. Mm. And uh, so tell us about how you got the ride on your, you know, your top horses that, that ended up being on the Olympic shortlists. Is that they were on the shortlist, right, leading up to Atlanta? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I, my good jumping horse, Kavanagh, um, he was, I don't think he was ever, he was on the national squad, but he was never shortlisted because he had a big melanoma on his throat and um you know he just was too much of an, a risk if something happened internationally and i understood that even though in my opinion and others he was the best horse in the country mm. um arguably and um so i got him from a guy called alan carey who i'd known through a good mate of mine peter byrne who was you know, a very good eventing rider back in that era and um peter had identified him as a four-year-old and i asked him what young horses are around he said oh, this is one of alan carey's is a freak and i didn't get to see the horse for some time and alan gave the horse to uh penny butt who penny uh yeah penny butt she became i can't remember her initial her maiden name stubs and um and um penny and sandy invented the horse for Oh, a good while. I think he was intermediate when I got the horse, and um, but he was he he was a, a really special horse, a really gentle horse, and um, and I found him, you know, a wonderful partner. But you know, he had a fair bit of education on the flat, and, and you know, a fair bit of exposure jumping when I got him. But um, he was acrophobic, so when he went on cross country courses and, and around cross country, he just lost it. So he wasn't, he didn't think well cross country. But, Acrophobic um, is what's what exactly it, is that? He had a fear of open spaces. Oh, oh, far out! No, that's not good for cross country. No, no, no. He was pretty wild, actually. I only <laughs> rode him. I only rode him in one one day. I went and went. Mm, yeah, no, nah. <laughs> not not suited to that. But um, I got him because he, he had the cancer, and a few jumping riders. I think George Colleen and Chuggy tried the horse, and they loved him, but he had the melanoma so he wasn't terribly commercial but oh he was a, just a wonderful jumper and um i guess i had him i got him when he was a degrader and i think within 18 months he was jumping in mini pre's and then shortly thereafter in grand prix he was fantastic mm -hmm. and um you know because he had such a, he had a background of education and and competition experience so he, he wasn't and he was so mindlessly careful that he, he he was able to progress very quickly and um 
so I I bought him for five hundred bucks from Alan, and um, and he was just the best horse I still ever put a leg over, and um, and, and so what was his I breeding? To, he was a thoroughbred. Yeah, he was he was um, thoroughbred, but his dam line um, and sire line went back to a horse called the Tetrarch. So I'm a real I look for the Tetrarch in in um, yeah in their pedigrees. And um, you'll know that from our previous chats. Of but, course, um, a lot of really good uh, quality jumpers, particularly the grey grey gene comes from from him in thoroughbreds. And um, yeah, so he he was um, yeah placing. I didn't win a World Cup with him, but he placed in pretty much everyone he went in. And um, so he was certainly at that level but um was never going to go on an international team but um mm. so that i got him yeah from alan and the other horse uh was a horse called whiz kid that um a client of mine jody hancock was was looking for uh an eventer and um to take over from her other little horse little primitive cool horse and um and i put her on to a, to a friend of mine in brisbane mark myers you might remember Mark. He unfortunately died in a, an eventing accident at Fig Tree Pocket. But um, Mark, Mark had this uh, horse that I, I didn't didn't think would actually suit Jody. I thought he might be a bit t- too much horse for it. But and she bought him, and it was a lovely, lovely horse. But he was a bit too much for her. So um, she asked me if I would ride him at a few events and and turn him over for her. So that was the plan initially. So the first event was the national championships at Gundawindi, and he won that, and and then he just continued to to win or place in pretty much everything he went in, and um, until he was, yeah, you know, um, pretty one. He won the I think I'm not sure it was the state or the national one day championships just before the final selection trial at Melbourne, and he was on the New South Wales team at Melbourne, and uh, and that's when he basically um, got sold and. Um, and yeah, so didn't end up going anywhere, but um, went to Belgium, and yeah, I didn't hear much of him after that. But um, yeah, so he was the horse that you mentioned. What my childhood dreams were. David Green and I grew up as as kids, teenagers, and we both dreamed about being on the Olympic podium together, mm. <laughs> and uh, eventing. And uh, he had a really good horse at the time, Chatsby, and I had this horse, and they were both. You know, we thought metal chances, and um, and that was that was our childhood dream as mates. We were going to be on the podium together, so it nearly happened. <laughs> it nearly happened. Yeah. Well, there's there's I guess there's still time. You know, in a way, you know, both. Well, I know you still ride, and both of you have uh, coached at the top level. You never know. Oh, that's you know, that's 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 a um, a, a dream for a different era. <laughs> yeah. <one. laughs> No, you got to have a dream, don't you? Yeah. Well, on on actually on um on that coaching, you're you're one of the few level three coaches uh, in the country. Do you have, I, I guess, a coaching philosophy? Um. Well, you know, it's it's. Firstly, it's not easy being a coach, um, because you you know you if you're if you're riding. At the top level, you know, or riding it, you know, at any at any significant um, level of competition, you you attract you attract clients, um, and a lot of times you attract clients and you start teaching when you haven't had much teaching experience other than that which you've received. And um, I think you've got to to be a coach. You have to be interested in learning, mm. and um, so because uh, you know academic learning is a part of that development. And I think a lot of people think that it only comes from practical application, um, but there's a lot of theoretical learning that's essential to be able to offer assistance to a wide range of people and be able to assist them in training a wide range of horses. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's not just enough to be a good horseman or, or, or to be a good competitor. Um, you, you need to have a much more rounded rounded education than that and uh, i think that's largely undervalued these days and that's what was good about the coaching scheme um you know certainly uh, yeah up until sort of quite recently i think that was very it was very relevant um 
uh, and, and making it um, specific to the sport. It's 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 um, metamorphosed into something a little different. But um, but um, for me, being a level three coach, you know, all my um, all the people that I looked up to in the sport, you know, you had Wayne Roycroft, Vicky Roycroft, George Santa, Collingbrook, Rod Brown, Wayne, uh, Barry Roycroft. You know, everybody that was somebody in the sport was um, in in both sports or in all three disciplines really was a level three coach and and I found the learning process because I was one of the first that went right through the scheme and actually sat formal level three examinations. Um, I found the learning process uh, particularly helpful, you know, to to actually study up on things that that um, you know I hadn't encountered, even though I was you know winning and placing in World Cups and the ridden at three day events at top level and the like. I didn't know it, so. Mm. It was, very good process to to um, to undertake. It was a very good learning a learning process, and um, and then of course you get to practice your coaching on your students and find out what methods work, what what um, styles of coaching are effective, as opposed to just repeating what you know you'd received. And um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Educating yourself, being prepared to learn. You know, I've, I've been privileged to ride under some of the best coaches in the world and um, and learn so much from them as well and from their books. Um, yeah, so I, I'd say just be open to learning and, um, and, yeah, and don't hang on too tightly. Pretty much. Yeah, don't, uh, don't hang on too tightly to, to what you think is right. Is that what you mean by that? Well, in lots of ways. Um, to, yes, indeed. Yeah, there's no one right, 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 right way. Um, you know, you need to be, the horses are all different and riders are all different. They're mm. built differently. They think differently. They respond differently. Um, so just, yeah, be, be prepared to be, to be, um, uh, to try, to try tech, different techniques of communicating, different techniques of, of training and um yeah and yeah and and be open to to learning from your experiences and the experiences of other people yeah i guess i think we're probably um lucky well we've been lucky here anyway there there has been some formal structure of coach education and progression and you know when i was in, in america really anyone could hang out their name as a coach with absolutely no qualification or no, they wouldn't even have to have any experience at all and, and they could be calling themselves a, a coach, um, which people here do too. Um, but certainly here you at least have some sort of backing or something behind it with the NCAS scheme. I know it's not what it used to be. It's not It's, it's no longer called that. It's the EA coaching scheme. But, um, yeah, there's certainly structure in place. And you know that is a good thing. Um, I, th- I think it could be improved these days, um, and 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 b- get get a little bit more of a a a, uh, a discipline focus, um, like the, the British the British coaching scheme does now. You have it's it's not just the British Horse Society, but you have um, you know um, British jumping and British eventing and British dressage, and they have coaches. Um, within their discipline that are accredited within the discipline, and I, you know, I put that forward to um, to um, to EA as a submission, but I don't know where that'll go. But I see that as the future, really, so that we're we're um, mm. we're we're bringing you know existing coaches in the disciplines into the coaching scheme. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're out there coaching at a clinic. You know, do you have a, a go-to grid or a warm-up exercise? You know, is there something you're particular about starting on with, you know, maybe not every group, but most groups before progressing on uh, to the rest of the lesson? Look, I think the one of the most important things I, I've i um, taken, I, I, I use a lot of poles and cavalettis, um, and I think getting them to understand line and you know approach line and straightness on takeoff in the air on landing 
getting away, um, straightness on straight lines, straightness on curved lines, um, rhythm, all of those things can be established without leaving the floor. And um, I, I do a lot of that fun, fundamental stuff with with um, beginner riders, with young horses, even with, you know, going horses that you don't want to wear the legs out. You know, they've only got so many jumps in them. And, you know, you can do lots and lots and lots of training exercises over poles or, or cavalettis or, in fact, small jumps where you're focusing on the skill rather than the, um, the, the effort. Yeah. So poles, cavalettis, like small grids, absolutely, for inexperienced riders so they get the feel of the mechanics of a jump and, and they learn to, to, to maintain their position and their controlled, you know, um, leg, hands, releases, eyes, body, all that sort of stuff. So they start to get, you know, some form of balance um, with the jumping horse. So just simple, simple trot grids. Um, I use them a lot, particularly if they start jumping individual fences and they, they get discouraged by, by, um, you know, not being able to get good distances and you know, mm. have the odd refusal and stuff like that. It's very easy to get them confident back in a grid and, and let them jump bigger fences and go, oh, it's all okay. You know? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, when I will re- revert, revert to, to grids if anyone's having confidence issues um, because that takes that emphasis off getting a distance away from the rider. It, you pretty much orchestrate that for them. And, yeah, um, that's so, right. Yeah. It puts the responsibility back onto the horse a bit more. Leave yeah. them alone. That's right. That's right. It takes that pressure off them. And like you said, not wearing the horse's legs out, I guess, with pole work and cavalettis, you know, you, you you don't have to – you can do that multiple times a week, um, especially pole work, you know, without uh, putting too much extra concussion from jumping big courses uh, on the horse and practising yeah, your eye. They've only got so many jumps in their legs and, you, you know, you can – waste a lot of that doing training big jumps at home when when you the same purpose or the same outcome can be gained by training over small fences that that don't, don't put any real um, duress on them yeah well uh, going from the entry level uh, jumping clinic let's have a look at this year's olympics you know we saw some pretty impressive show jumping there did you have any uh, particular horse that you'd like to take home <laughs> oh, there's a handful of them. Oh, there's lots of them, really, some, some wonderful horses. Um, oh, of course, the, the standout um, has to be Ben Maher's horse. The, the um, Explosion. Yeah, Explosion W. Um, very impressive. Very impressive horse. And, you know, the speed at which they jump those enormous fences now is just just amazing. And... Um, and, you know, he's a very good rider and a very good producer of horses. That, that's an exceptional horse. Mm. And, of course, Peter Fredrickson is just outstanding as a horseman and um, just so consistent now. And, um, yeah, he was he was just – the performance of that team over the Olympics was outstanding. Now, with the format that it was, they just led from start to finish. And it was, it was um, poetic justice, really, I thought, that um, they ended up securing the gold team medal. And um, – and Ben, the individual medal. I mean, I, I I reckon that horse two years out from the Olympic Games was going to be the gold medalist. Mm. Uh, it is certainly impressive the whole way through. And yeah, the Swedes, the Swedes were awesome. And I thought that was uh, a Petter Fredriksson's horse having, you know, jumped how many how many the last Olympic Games and this Olympic Games it's jumped yeah. something like ten clear rounds. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary, and. and it, um, Comes out into the arena, looks like a little stock horse. <laughs> it, it does a bit. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. When you watch it canter, um, it doesn't. It doesn't look like a super impressive, big, correct round dressage canter at all. No, it's a little scampery cantering thing. But gee, it's a jumper. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, the, the jump off that firstly bent in the individuals and and Petter did in, to, to take second place. They were, man, they just left nothing, nothing. The no, they're they're perfection. They're perfectionists. That's and for sure. Fast, fast. You know, that's the sport now. Yeah, and they have to be go able to go fast and jump enormous fences and be careful. It's mm. just, they've got to have those um, those uh, abilities to win those the big championships. And you know that that was a and they have to be tough. Like that was a tough ask that format. Um, 
you know, from you know, on a lot of levels, it was a tough ask. It was tough, tough on the the, the top horses, um, but also tougher on the on the um, horses that really weren't ready for that sort of competition. Mm. Um, they may have. There's know, a lot of jumping. There's a lot of jumping, and, and you could see from the from the outset that some that just weren't prepared at that level, you know. Um, and I don't think that's good from our social responsibility perspective. I think, you know, the, I think we would have liked to have had some input into into that from Australia, but that didn't eventuate. Um, but I think, yeah, I certainly know uh, that you know, from a jumping disciplines perspective, they would have liked to have fed back into into the FEI forum on those issues. Um, well, it seemed like the FEI wasn't really listening to um, the riders group on that perspective either on the uh the drop score the lack of the drop score yeah. format that puts a lot a lot a lot of pressure on 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 riders and horses to continue to go when they would, might otherwise tip their hat and mm. um we saw, we saw that in the ring and and um i just think that was a little bit of a sad day um and i think a lot of people support that perspective but um um you know when you've got a, a of, you know, a fourth member. If one horse just is having a bad day, or a rider just has a bad day, then they tip the hat, and there's another rider that can go out and 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 um and meet that challenge, you know, or mm. at least attempt to. Whereas um they kept going, and that uh, yeah, that was ugly at times. But um, so yeah, I I I didn't I didn't like the obviously the format got the right results. I think for some from some very very clever course building. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think yeah, from a social responsibility, I think you know the FEI and the and the International Olympic Committee, you put a lot of pressure to bear on the sport by trying to reduce numbers and costs, and and mm-hmm. uh, I, I certainly understand that it's an expensive yeah. sport to stage at the Olympic Games, but I think to the detriment of the sport. That's just my perspective. It's maybe not be supported by a lot of people, but um, well, it's shared by a lot of. A lot of the other top competitors, uh, from what from what I read anyway, over there, like Stevie Godard, you know, many of the other Grand Prix riders would would have the same idea. Um, and I guess yeah, like you say, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place with the IOC and the the needs and demands of running equestrian sport at the Olympics. Yeah, but but as we say, the social responsibility. If the sport starts to look bad in that environment, that does our sport no good. Mm. Absolutely, the international stage that we we then present the sport at, um, then becomes less attractive. And in in the modern era, when there's so many options for, for to take people's time and money and effort um, and aspiration, um, they 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 don't they'd want to be associated with a sport that might um, not sit comfortably with them from a from some perspective or another. Who and, knows? Maybe the IOC think if that'll happen then it'll be easy to kick us out you never know it could be a conspiracy well, yeah i'm not even going to go down that line it's just you know it's, it's it is an expensive sport to host at the olympic games we all know that and um mm. you know i'm sure well, from an IOC perspective it would be easier out than in but um i don't think we our governing our international governing body should be allowing it to be to be um, um, negatively impacted by those decisions. Uh, absolutely yeah. not. Well, let's let's talk about some uh, future Olympic plans. You're breeding some nice young horses. Now you've uh, you know you've had to sell a few, uh, and we t- mentioned you mentioned the Tetrak line earlier. Yeah. Um, you know you're very focused uh, and you study the breeding of horses a lot. So just tell us about, you know, some of the young horses that you've got on the ground at the moment and what their breedings are. Yeah, the, you know, as, as I, I mentioned, um, I think the sport only is going to get faster. And um, so the modern the modern jumping horse uh, has to be, you know, a, a very careful, respectful jumper. They have to be brave. They have to be fast. They have to be sound. And they have to be tough. And um, I don't know a faster tougher breed than thoroughbreds and if you look at the history of warm blood breeding the way they've refined that is through the infusion of thoroughbred breeding mm. in, in that in that mix 
um, with, whether it's Dutch breeding, whether it's French breeding, whether it's German breeding, that's how they've done the refining over the either the the, the, the German warm blood breeds or the, the Cell Francais um, or even the, the, the KWPN breeds. Um, they've all infused thoroughbred blood. So, you know, I we've we've had some sensational jumping horses out of this country, the thoroughbreds that have competed internationally. And, you know, um, I've sort of done a lot of research into those good horses and those bloodlines and as have others in this country. I know David Robertson's a, been a very well-researched thoroughbred breeder for many years and, and done much the same sort of thing with good results. And um, so, yeah, the, the mares that that some of the mares I've used, um, well, most of them start with a, a thoroughbred dam and um, and uh, then I've, I've bred them up. So I've used some, some um, the ones I have on the ground now I've used um, – some very um, quite well regarded, very commercial stallions now that are producing. Um, Emerald features quite largely in in that. Um, so I've used this season a, a young stallion called Pomerol de Muse, which is by mm. Emerald out of a, a Canon uh, double cross chin chin bottom line mare. Chin chin and the Quirly chin is, I guess, regarded as one of the best mare lines in the world um he's a young stallion called million dollar um he's available through the holsteiner the band and uh he's with um oh my goodness who's he with now um there's a few people breeding to him yeah he's a very very spectacular jumper um oh, just i can't think of his name at the minute but um it'll come to me and um I've also used where I've had to use fresh semen. I've used some some really good young stallions. Um, I've used one of Chug's stallions, which is Cavachon, again by Emerald, out of a mare that we all know here very well, Crystalline. Yeah. Um, I've used him over a mare that has Tetra top and bottom line, but also has Tristram and you know other notable thoroughbred producing lines uh, that are spectacular cold out of him. Um, and, uh, and a lovely Cabochon filly. We've used Cassini, who again himself is a pretty spectacular jumper, um, and I think will will really um, benefit from blood in in um, the mares that he covers. And I've yeah. got, uh, actually got two by him um, out of jumping line bred mares, and um, used Untouchable. Untouchable 27, the big, um, I'm not sure what stud book he's in. He might be in several, but I think the background is Self-Francais. Um, yeah. The, the, the grey stallion. Yep. Yeah, he's beautiful, beautiful to watch. And people should yes, look, look that up on YouTube, Untouchable 27. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. So, um, yeah, them and what else did we use this season? Uh, Leamont W, which is very closely bred to Explosion W. I think the dam line is uh, – the the dam is a full sister to Explosion W. So, um, yeah, he's pretty exciting on stadium. That's one of, um, uh, I think, BDL's young stallions, as is Pomerol de Mears. Um, that's a Dutch stud that um, that's brought out here by a couple of people, but we worked through um, through Rory Hovel in WA. Yeah. And um, what else have we got? Um, and I'm guessing you're yeah. hoping to hoping to sell a few of these to keep breeding the next generation. Yeah. Well, my my purpose is not to ride them for myself. Um, you know, I, I definitely look to see them in in the sport in the future with you know riders that are going to produce horses and are going to be in the sport in you know another 10 years time and um so um you know I, i'm breeding them with a view to being competition horses mm. and um you know you hopefully can position them into good homes the, the first one i bred some years ago um stephen dingle now rides cavalier de rue he's um he's a by um baluda rue um, out of a, a mare that I bred that was out of a summertime 
also again summertime got that precipitation um bloodline in it and you know and others um he's he's jumping that up uh he's jumped that up at grand prix level is that right yeah did world cups earlier this year and late last year mm. um, it hasn't been a much of a year but i don't think that'll that'll um, be to the detriment of the horse he's he's been very carefully produced by Stephen, and um mm. and i think when when the time's right he'll be um, starting again um yeah Stephen's done a wonderful job producing that horse and that's what i hope for mine that you give them as good a start i mean you're obviously involved in the start of some of my young horses and yeah. uh, i think you give them the, yeah. the start as you can and um doing the cowboy work from there you try to position them in a home that that is going to be able to produce them and and um and give them the best opportunity to realize their ability you know they might they're not all going to be superstars probably but um but you know that's that's going to be my contribution i think going forward yeah absolutely <laughs> No, there's some, there's some nice horses, that, and as you mentioned, I've I've uh, sat on a few, bro- broken in uh, three, uh, three fillies so far this year, and they've all been yeah really fantastic, athletic canters on them, uh, you know, good brains, and yeah, that's what you want in a young horse. Yeah, and uh, you've got you got a fair bit on your plate, you know, from everything we've been going over uh, at the moment. So how do you? Sort of balance work and family time, you know. It sounds like you've got a lot going on, a lot of different areas. Yeah, I um, uh, well, I have two two um kids that live with me. Um, yeah, um, we uh, my former wife and I separated, and uh, we share custody of the kids. So uh, one week in two, I I have them at my home, and so I I'm their kid, like I'm responsible for them. So that does restrict my um my opportunities in that week and i just try to maximize the opportunities in the other week um i have some um some very good friends that help me manage my competition horses and my breeding horses um because i'm not on a, on a property any longer so um, um i have my competition horse out at diamond b farm with helen helen and amanda helen chug and, and amanda madigan and they're just fantastic to work with they yeah look after me really well and uh and my horses up in Buchanan with Martina Kovacs and um, and Sterntaler Equestrian and um, all the stud horses are up there and Martina's just a fantastic supporter and and um, we have you know quite an exciting breeding program I think between us there's some you know very nice mares and um, yeah so that's how I juggle it really uh, it's a week and week about and uh, mm. I fit in what teaching I can. And in between, you know, I've got kids going to school still. So, um, you know, those commitments, they have to get to school and at home and be fed and, you know, all those other things. So um, try to do that and um, try to try to keep myself well enough, which has been tricky this year, but um, to to ride when I can and um, compete when I can. And um, I, I still like, uh, like doing that. And uh, I've got a very nice young horse that... Um, I think has enormous capacity in the next few years. I, I'm hoping that he might turn out to be, you know, a proper horse, and uh, he certainly feels like he's got that ability. And uh, and I'll just take this. And what's his name? Uh, he's bred by the Oaks. He's he's called Oaks Evergreen. Now Oaks Evergreen TS, which is my um, my suffix for Trinity Sport Horses, which is my my uh, my stud prefix or stud suffix. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he's he's a he's a lovely horse. And he buy emerald out of a, a mare that um, Chugs imported, um, a Caratino mare, and uh, she's had two Grand Prix horses uh, out of her. And um, yeah, my guy, I think, is is just going to slot right in there. Well, anyway, that's the plan. We'll see if it comes mm. up. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly. Learn? What you learn in the, in this game, if you're in it long enough, is you can make the, the best plans and they don't necessarily come off, but you've got a plan for them too. That's right. The right that's right. So, plan uh, A, B, C, D. That's it. That's it. C- certainly uh, sounds like you've got a, a bit of a village, uh, you know, helping out with 
keeping your horses uh, on the on the, sh- the show on the road and also in the breeding program. If, yeah, if anyone's interested in uh, looking at the horses that you've bred or, or, you know, let's say booking you for a show jumping clinic, where mm-hmm. would they be able to get in contact with you? Uh, via my Facebook page, Stuart Equestrian, or, or me personally, Robert Stewart, my Facebook presence there, or my website, or, or um, yeah, or just call me up or email me, you know, usual stuff. I don't, know, I don't think it's appropriate for me to give me <laughs> perhaps my email address and phone over the, over this, but... Um, oh, we can put it, put it in the show notes, or okay. I'll r- write it on the back of the toilet door at the survey. Stop by our own. No, no. Well, thanks That's very much sad. for. That's a bit sad, Charlie. But anyway. <laughs> thanks very much for coming on, Rob. Right, and uh, I recommend anyone out there goes and checks out uh, Rob's uh, Facebook page because you know he does breed some fantastic young horses, and that's not just because I've broken them in. That's uh, because there's a lot of a lot of time and a lot of knowledge goes into his breeding program. And can't wait to see it bear some fruits. Yeah, thanks, mate. Appreciate it. No problem, Rob. You have a great evening. Thanks, bud. Cheers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You know, I really got quite a lot out of that. I would have liked to have talked for almost two hours on on some of the subjects we were getting into there. And, you know, actually, in actual fact, I would have liked that conversation to go on just a little bit longer. One of the conversations... Sorry, one of the questions that I'd originally posed to Rob before we started the interview was about overcoming setbacks. And, you know, Rob has a lot to say on that. You know, he's, um, you know, been in the game a long time. He's been out of the game and he knows, um, you know, he's had to deal with more setbacks than most people, uh, certainly more than me. Um, and, and definitely we'll get Rob on another time. Uh, to explain that because I found what he said really useful and I think uh, quite valuable for a lot of the people out there. Anyway, that's just a teaser for the next episode. Thank you very much.